0: Good morning again. It's great to be here at Waypoint together. Uh, Greetings again to those of you who are online. We're glad you're with us. Uh, How you are able to be with us, grateful for that technology and trust that it's working well this morning. We're continuing this morning with our study of Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Mount found in chapters five, six, and seven of the Gospel of Matthew, a study that I've subtitled for us, Living in God's Kingdom. This morning, we're gonna to get to probably what is the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching. We'll be looking at the last six verses of chapter five of Matthew's Gospel. We still have chapters five and, or six and seven ahead of us, but what is before us this morning is probably the highest point and the centerpiece, the critical sort of substance of Jesus' message for his disciples, for anyone who would seek to follow him, and really for life in the kingdom of God. And if a person truly lives the teaching of Jesus we're looking at today, his or her life from the inside out will be completely different. He or she will themselves be different, living on a different plane, living a different reality governed wholly by God who is love, dwelling in ongoing peace and joy, what Jesus called abundance, And I don't think any of this is exaggeration. Before we read, though, let's pray uh, with uh, me one more time. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for drawing us together. Thank you for drawing us into yourself. Thank you for meeting with us in this space and together. Not that you're not always with us, you are, but thank you that you've gathered our attention around yourself and your son and your word. Help us to be attentive. Give us eyes that are good to see the things that you would have us see. Give us ears that are able to hear truth and grace. Give us hearts that are receptive soil that you might plant in us, seeds that will grow and blossom and bring you delight and pleasure and joy, and it will satisfy us. I pray that you forgive our sin and mine. I pray that you would speak through me if my words are consistent with your word. May they be taken to heart if my words in any way or ever deviate from your word. May they be passed over and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus, in his name, amen. So a quick recap of how we got here, in case you haven't been here with us. Jesus began his public ministry, we saw in chapter four of Matthew's gospel, calling people to repent. We talked about, we have many times what that meant, to change one's mind, to change one's way, to change one's life, to change one's thinking about all sorts of things, including sin, but not only sin to think again, to reconsider, to turn around, to go a different direction because, because Jesus said, the kingdom of God or the reign of God, the reality in which what God wills is done is near in a way that it never had been before. It is available and it is accessible to all who were with Jesus, all who were around Jesus, all who heard Jesus in a way that that kingdom or reign or reality had never been before. Because of his physical presence, the king had arrived. We celebrate Jesus' arrival at Christmas as king on on Palm Sunday as king. Here is his arrival in chapter four of Matthew's gospel. And he says, everything now can be different. In addition, and more specifically, Jesus pronounced God's blessing and favor on a whole bunch of different kinds of people in different sorts of situations, many of whom and many of which the world did not consider either blessed or worthy of God's blessing or favor. Jesus declared that people who were broken and poor and weak were among the blessed, people whose situations and circumstances were either not desirable or favorable, they were blessed. And this was and is the grace of God that precedes all else, God comes to us in grace and with grace, we don't earn God's favor. God comes to us in grace and we respond in gratitude, with gratitude and in and with joyful obedience and devotion. And so we see and enter the glory of God's kingdom and God's reign in our lives in this life. Blessed are the spiritually poor. Those who grieve and mourn the meek, the weak, those who long for justice, who want things to be right and good in their lives and in the world. Blessed, Jesus said, are the merciful and the pure-hearted people and those who are persecuted and insulted in awful ways. They are blessed because God is near. God has made himself available to them. He is with them and for them. And this and so many other things that Jesus did and said were so out of step with the Jewish religion and the thinking of that day that, well, many of the religious people thought that Jesus was playing way too loosely with who God blesses and how God operates and how God is playing way too loosely with their rigid religion of do's and don'ts that worked for their sort of thinking And that they could manage to achieve and be successful at and accomplish or satisfy in their lives. Thinking of themselves as a result, as pretty good, as righteous. But Jesus said, oh, hey, everybody, everybody, listen up. I haven't come to abolish or step on or squash, or denigrate, or ignore the law of Moses, which is the law of Moses for me too. No, I have come to fulfill it. And by that he meant to explain it, to embody it, and to invite all people into the beautiful heart and soul of it, and into a sort of righteousness or goodness. Let's consider those synonyms for our purposes because righteousness in our language at our time just doesn't really mean what Jesus meant. A sort of righteousness or goodness that far surpasses the stuffy self-righteousness and the rules and regulations of hollow religion. And then Jesus began to describe that good and beautiful way of living in God's kingdom by inviting people to reconsider, think again, repent about what the law truly said and what it didn't say about murder and anger and lust and divorce and adultery and divorce again and telling the truth and living in the light and about the human tendency, our tendency, my tendency toward revenge and toward getting back at people who have hurt us. And around all of these subjects, Jesus invited people to consider a completely different way. You remember, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, we call these Jesus six antitheses. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. We read last week, but I tell you, don't resist or push back against that evil person. You must relinquish the urge and you're right in many ways, to exact revenge and instead trust God with such things. And now we get to this morning's passage, chapter five, Matthew's gospel, beginning at verse 43. This is Jesus speaking. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Listen closely. This is the word of God through the Son of God. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not, not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and it's true that such things, and probably that very thing had been said by rabbis and teachers of the law, by elders and one's parents, religious leaders and so on. Yes, but that was not... And is not what the scriptures said or teach or say, at least not like that. Rather, in the book of Leviticus, where Jesus and they were quoting from, we read simply, love your neighbors as yourself, as you love yourself. It doesn't say anything about hating one's enemies. That's simply where we drift. People hate us, and so we hate them. When people shun us, we shun them back. When others seek to do us harm, we seek to do them harm. When someone opposes our God, we oppose them. I see it all the time. I'm sure you do as well. And rejecting or shunning or opposing or oppressing other people on the grounds of one's faith or one's own religion or their different religion Is always the worst kind of hate because it's so easy to justify condemning others on the basis of one's good, right, appropriate, valid, true religious beliefs. As if in doing so, we're standing up for God. As if God needs us to stand up for him. He doesn't. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbors, Consider to be someone like you, someone who lived near you, someone with whom you had much in common, friends, family, next door neighbors. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, who are over there, they're across the tracks, they're in the next city, they look differently, they speak differently, they have different cultural customs. They may in some way be opposed to you or different than you, like the Romans who ruled the Jews and exploited them, taxed them heavily. Love your neighbors, yes, but protect yourself. Watch out for your enemies. They don't have your best in mind. Beware of them. Don't trust them. Do nothing that would benefit them. Why would you? We don't. The Pharisees agreed that loving one's neighbors was lawful. Loving one's neighbors was awful, lawful and appropriate. But that was it. But Jesus goes further. But I say to you, love your enemies. And we've talked about love before lots of times. The Greek language has four different words for love or that we in different ways translate or interpret as love. Storge, which is the love among family, the love a parent has for a child or a child has for a parent. Eros, which is the love that exists between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife and a wife. It has romance and elements of sexuality in it. Passion. Philia, which is a warm and true affection that exists between two good friends, between the closest of friends, the nearest and dearest of Friends. And then agape, which describes an unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill to selflessly wish the best for another person and to live and act with that aim. And that last kind of love is the sort of love Jesus is talking about here and the word Jesus uses here for love. Jesus doesn't call his followers to love their enemies as family or as spouses or as best friends, though none of that's excluded, but rather with that last word, agape, which is very much an act of one's will. Jesus calls anyone who would be a student, apprentice, follower, or use the name today Christian to love in that way. It is an act of the will. It may include the heart and hopefully does, but it is an act of the will. And who exactly is Jesus suggesting that we love in this way? Who are our enemies, one's enemies? Most obvious in that context would have been Roman soldiers. Jesus referenced them in the verses that immediately precede this that we read last week. You may remember. But also people who have taken us to court, Jesus said. People who have imposed their lives, their power, their authority, their prerogative on us. And people who have insulted us. People who have denigrated us verbally, in writing, on social media, behind our backs, and so on. And that's only the beginning. We could easily go on. People on the other side of the political divide, oh, it's been a fun seven years. People of other faiths and religions, foreign agents, the Los Angeles Dodgers fans out there, the person who scammed your elderly parent out of thousands of dollars. The person who got drunk and ran his car into yours, the neighbor who won't stop playing the loud music, your cold and calculating boss, and the list could go on. You fill in the blank. Why don't you fill in the blank? Who would you say are enemies of yours or ours, or who are seen in our culture, in our world, in our church as enemies? Go ahead, shout it out, speak it up. Putin someone says Vladimir Putin abusers, abusers. abusers. abusive people don't be shy Blank-eyed saints. say it again saints. plank eyed saints there you go a reference to something we'll get to later in Jesus sermon on the mount what else who else come on rich people. Okay. Don't have to apologize. Hypocrites. Herb Perez. God. Sorry I said that online. Herb, we love you and we'll pray for you. But thanks for your candor. Drunk drivers. drivers. Who else? Maybe you're not comfortable saying it. Maybe a spouse. Maybe another relative. Maybe a pastor. Maybe this pastor. Maybe someone who's deeply disappointed you, frustrated you, irritated you, gotten under your skin, annoyed you, hurt you. But how do we love such unlovable, unattractive, unappealing, despised people? How can one wish the best to and for a person one so dislikes and may not feel as worthy of our time or our energy or our effort, much less our benevolence and our love? Bertrand Russell, some of you know, was a well-known British philosopher of the previous century. He was raised in a Christian home, though he later adopted atheism. He was familiar with the teachings of Jesus, if not their actual meaning. In one place he commented, the Christian principle, love your enemies, is good. There's nothing to be said against it, except that it's too difficult for most of us to sincerely practice But how do we love such unlovable, unattractive, unappealing, despised people? How can one wish the best for people who we so dislike or who we feel like are not worthy of our time, our energy, our effort, or our love? Arthur Brooks, anyone know Arthur Brooks? I love Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks has written, a first step might be confessing to God our real disinterest in this sort of thing. Anger and revenge are more natural responses, he writes, and ones that have a more, a sort of bitter sweetness to them. A first step might be confessing to God our real disinterest in this sort of thing. Like, this is not what I want to do for fun. Love my enemies. This is not how I envision Sunday afternoon relaxing. A first step might be confessing to God our real disinterest in this sort of thing. And then what? Here are a list of a few ideas that I'd scrambled together. One, acknowledging the feelings that you have about the other person and that you are able to make choices about your feelings going forward. Acknowledging our feelings about the other person and that we have agency about our feelings. They don't just happen to us, but they happen and then we choose what to do with those. Number two, put yourself in the other person's shoes. Truly try to understand them from the inside. Who are they? How did they become the person they are? What have they gone through? Why would they have done what they did? What forces or influences have shaped that person? Seeing a situation from the other person's perspective may be difficult, but it's really important. Number three, agree that just like you, this other person is made in God's image. The imprint of the divine one is upon them and always will be. Number four, agree that God loves that person. Jesus said, God, he, God causes his son to rise on the good and the bad alike, and he sends rain, the blessing of rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God loves that person. Number five, acceptance. Accept who the person is, accept how they are, accept what has happened that the other person may have done in the past that can't be changed. Until we accept who a person is, their situation, their past, all of that, we will never love them. Number six, forgive the other person. You probably saw this one coming. Forgive the other person for what they have said or done, for who they've been, for any hurt they've caused or harm. This doesn't mean that what that person may have done was okay or acceptable or tolerable or legal or moral or ethical or whatever. Or that it's okay for them to do that again, it's not. Or that they should not be held accountable for what they may have said or done, they should be. But in forgiving, we relinquish the right to get even with that person. And we free ourselves from the anger and the bitterness that get in the way of loving. Number seven, find something about that person to love. Anything, it could be the color of their shoes. Find something that's admirable, something that's likable, anything. Number eight, try to see the other person as your child or as your parent or as your sibling. Try to see them as someone else's parent, someone else's sibling, someone else's child. Remember that that other person likely has or had at one point parents who adored them. Siblings with whom they played. Maybe children who looked up to them. Number nine, then search for one thing that you have in common with that purpose. Just one square foot of common ground. And then 10, there had to be 10. It just feels like a biblical number. Pray and ask God to help you. If you haven't already, pray and ask God to help you. To help you supernaturally do what you cannot do on your own, what you don't even want to do on your own, what I don't even want to do on my own. And to have this sort of love that is capable of embracing enemies. And after all that, hopefully one may be, is, could be, will more prepared, more equipped, more ready we're ready to love the person or the people for whom in some way are enemy to you and are not currently a recipient or a target on your radar to love. And quite practically, what might that look like? What might you loving that person or those people look like? There are several things that are very, very practical when it comes to engaging that person. Jesus suggests as a starter to pray for them. And what Jesus wasn't talking about was God, rain down your wrath on that person. God, bring justice to that person. God, cause that person to repent. God, give that person what they deserve. But rather pray for that person the same thing that you would pray for yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now love your enemy as you love yourself. Pray for them as you would a beloved person. Pray upon them and for them the mercy of God. Pray for them healing. Pray for them restoration. Pray for them meaningful relationships. Pray God's provision in their lives. Pray that God would warm their hearts and renew their spirits. Pray that his spirit would fall upon them and fill them, right? Yes and amen. And then after you pray, Jesus kind of leaves it at that. But then begin to think about what good thing you can say about that person. It's a next step. What good can I say about them? And then third, what good and kind and loving thing can I say to them? And then fourth, what good, kind, loving, generous, benevolent thing can I do? For them. What is a need in their life that I can supply, that God can use me to provide? How can I support them? How can I encourage them? What good thing, righteous, same thing. What righteous thing can I do for them that blesses them? Pray, speak about, speak to, do for Those are some steps after we've realized what we should not pray for them. And this, we remember, is the way of Jesus himself beginning with prayer, but encapsulating all of those things. He spoke blessing, he did things, and as he hung on a cross, he prayed blessing on his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, Jesus prayed. We've said before in the Sermon on the Mount that it really does matter. This is not just some good teaching off the shelf from the library, from who knows whoever. It doesn't matter. But these words come from Jesus himself. They are words that come from and out of one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. And the words that he spoke really do matter that they came from him. They were not cheap talk, they were not simple words, but they were truth embodied, truth lived, truth expounded, and grace. He didn't just say one day up on a hillside, pray for your enemies, but it was already in him to do that, which he would three years later do publicly for all the world to see and for their blessing and ours. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then there's the interesting, interesting facet of what happens when we embrace Jesus' teaching. You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Children look like their parents. Well, we're already children because we joined the church and we prayed that prayer and we became a Christian. Okay. Jesus says that we become children of God, we become like our Father when we embrace His Son and His truth and grace, transform our lives. When we do what He said, when we follow in His steps, when we mirror His image. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the grammar's a little tricky here. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. That we may be like God. There's this thing that begins to happen in us that won't happen any other way. I don't think it happens any other way. We don't become children of God until we do what Jesus said. Until we live into the fullness of who he was and the life to which he invites us. But then something grand and great happens. We experience a righteousness or a goodness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the legalistic religious folks. But we become one with God, forgive the mystical language, though I think it's biblical. He in us and us in him. Something happens, a transformation of sorts. Arthur Brooks uh, says elsewhere, loving one's enemies when actually practiced in the way of Jesus and in God's grace and in the power of God's Spirit sets a person free, opens up the world, makes possible what was impossible before. In a book titled, Love Your Enemies How Decent People Can Save America from a Culture of Contempt, that's hopeful in a nation that's deeply divided. There's hope. Is there going to be another way? Until or unless we learn to do what Jesus said and to follow in his steps and to love one another and to love even our enemies. One of our values was on the screen earlier alluded to. Love all people unconditionally. Oh, did that in, did all people include enemies? It's not written there explicitly, but sort of, yeah, yeah, it includes all enemies. Two movie recommendations just for fun. I'm going to insert those into my sermon because I can. The first is a movie called Best of Enemies. It's the true story of the unlikely relationship between a black woman named Ann Atwater, an outspoken civil rights activist from the 60s, and a dude named C.P. Ellis, who was the head of his regional branch or club of the Ku Klux Klan. During a racially charged summer in 1971, with deep disdain between the two of them. Somehow, through the working of God, they got together. And good, 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 amazing things came out of that in Durham, North Carolina and beyond. Watch the movie, Best of Enemies. And then there's another sort of amazing book that's just not or movie that you wouldn't normally watch because it's just it's, it didn't make it in the movies theaters. A guy named Daryl Davis, a black man, a renowned musician. Anyone seen his sort of documentary? It's called Accidental Courtesy. With his large, robust, lively, effervescent African-American man goes out of his way to engage members and grand wizards in the Ku Klux Klan and to treat them as friends and to treat them as brothers when they had nothing but hate and disdain for him. Watch the movie, Accidental Courtesy, and you will see the kingdom of God bursting forth. Lincoln uh, credited Abraham Lincoln, I think, with the words, We destroy our enemies when we make them our friends. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I think that's what God intends to do through the church, through us as individuals, on a political level, on a personal level, for sure. In our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools. I'm not saying I'm good at this, I'm not most of the time. But by God's grace and with God's help, I inch a little bit closer most of the time into the reality of Jesus' teaching that brings life and hope and goodness and joy and peace and unity. John Stott wrote, to return evil for good is devilish, but it happens. To return good for good is human, to return good for evil is divine. Bring about that divine God. There's way too much evil and hate and angst and bitterness in our world. I don't know about you, but I check in on the news every day. It's heartbreaking. There's lots of heartbreaking news around the world. Ukraine and Russia, they're kinda at the top a lot of the time today. And so I'm uh, continuing to pray instead of various military munitions, I wish Ukraine and the United States would drop bomber plane after bomber plane full of seized chocolates on Russia. Why not? Why couldn't we do it? Jesus, of course, isn't describing a national policy for defense or international relations. It's more about personal relationships, but wouldn't it be great if, as a nation, among other nations, we could do things like that? We'd have to repurpose our Air Force, retrofit some some of the airplanes. Rifles would fire jelly beans, bazookas would fire T-shirts, Waypoint t shirts. <laughs> Howitzers would deliver medicine. Missiles would explode with confetti. Where's that going to start? It's not going to start with the people not of God but it may start and it may grow and it may blossom in those who take Jesus' teaching seriously. Last line for Jesus. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. When we read the Greek words teleos, from which we get telephone or telescope, the end, the destination, far away, In English, that word translated as perfect means morally flawless, without flaw, really perfectly good. Um, Yeah, describes a diamond or this or that. But in the Greek and in the context, it has uh, many more meanings that really mean perfectly mature or arrived or finished or gotten there or complete, complete. Complete, And so Jesus says, and he speaks here only in reference to love, be perfect in love as your father in heaven is perfect in love. There's going to be a lot of flaws in your life in all sorts of ways, but aspire to, or even grammatically, you shall be, you will be, you light of the world, you salt of the earth, be perfect, mature, arrived, finished, complete, not in all these other sorts of ways, but in love. It is what counts. Why the church prays about so many other things, why we gather around our dinner table night, uh, each night at the Pappas household and don't pray for our enemies, I don't know. Maybe we'll change that. Maybe we'll change what we do here on Sunday morning so that the focus of our prayer more often is For those people who are different than us, those people we dislike, we may even hate at times. And as we do, I believe God will work in us and not only in them. We may become friends with them. Good things may come out of it for us. It can only go in that direction. That the world might be healed, that peace might come, that our relationships might be restored. It begins, Jesus says, with prayer. So I wanted to do a few things a little bit differently than we normally do at this point in our worship service and sermon time. First, I'd like us to bow and just pray a prayer of confession. Acknowledging and speaking truth to God about our lack of interest in doing what Jesus said to do a lot of the time. We'll start there. We'll finish up with something else, but let's bow together. Have mercy on us, God. Forgive me, forgive us for willingly or thoughtlessly remaining enemies with others for too long, for seeing people in ways that you don't look at them, for assuming that we're right and they're wrong, we're good, they're bad, for failing to walk in other's shoes, for failing to sympathize, for failing to be people of mercy as you've been merciful with us. Forgive us, heal us, set us straight, set us right, even if that's painful. Open our eyes to the relationships around us that you want to transform and renew. Restore to us the joy of your shalom and salvation. Bring about your kingdom on earth in us and sometimes even through us. Bring about your reign. You are near. Your kingdom is available. Your kingdom of love, kingdom of grace, and your kingdom of truth. Have mercy on us. In the name and through the cross and the blood of Jesus, amen.